Welcome to the Sports Surgery Clinic Surgical Advances podcast on the table. I am your host, Dr. Andy Franklin Miller, and this podcast is designed to delve into some of the research and evidence behind many of the commonly occurring orthopedic operative interventions. We get a chance to ask the questions many of you will be considering on what influences their decision making and how, as a referrer, we can put both the surgeon and our patients in their best possible position. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by two consultant orthopaedic spinal neurosurgeons, Mr. Michael Kelleher and Mr. Owen Fenton. It's a pleasure to have them with me. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for having us. Uh, Michael, we might start with yourself. I wonder whether you might just tell the listeners a little about your background in terms of training and interests. Um, I'm a spinal uh, neurosurgeon. My background training is neurosurgery. I did my spinal fellowship in Toronto. Uh, Our practice is predominantly degenerative uh, and using minimally invasive techniques to surgically decompress uh, the nerves. And and Owen, your training is similar background or, or any differences there? Thanks, Andy. Yeah, we're fairly similarly trained. I'm myself and uh, Michael are in a group practice. I uh, trained as a neurosurgeon also in Ireland, and I my spinal fellowship was a combined orthopedic and neurosurgical spine fellowship um, in Calgary. Um, uh, so I completed that uh, in 2016, and I've been in practice in Ireland since then. And certainly, we've seen that in many of these surgical podcasts, in that the consultant surgeons at the Sports Surgery Clinic have often. Uh, undergone overseas fellowships to gain greater exposure or detail. Uh, is there anything specific about why you chose those locations in terms of that advanced training? Well, for me to start, um, the my fellowship was, I'm sure, similar to Owen's combined orthopedic and uh, neurosurgical uh, spinal fellowship. And I suppose there's there's aspects of both disciplines that add to your understanding of uh, spinal surgery. And there's aspects of, of neurosurgical microscopic training that lend itself to minimally invasive approaches. So that's what I saw as the advantage in terms of, of the fellowship that I chose. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd endorse that. I, I, um, I, I chose a unit that was a, a, a large volume unit, so a large trauma center. And again, the benefit of a, a neurosurgeon doing a, a, an orthopedic fellowship is, is just that. So I, where, where, I'd, where I'd have a lot of training in micro neurosurgery during my, my, my uh, neurosurgical training in Ireland, um, I was exposed to a lot of uh, de- deformity and uh, spinal instrumentation on my fellowship that I perhaps wouldn't have seen uh, in my uh, neurosurgical training um, so um, it, 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 it gives us a, a, a good uh, grasp of um, the complexities involved in, uh, in spine surgery uh, and, and it gives the patients extra options as well if it's sometimes a micro decompression might be the optimal procedure but sometimes they do a little bit more so um, it, it's important uh, when you're training to uh, go to a, a center uh, with such volume and uh, a broad array of uh, procedures. 
Sure, sure. Um, today we're going to focus on lower back pain. It's an incredibly common condition and, and we know that the World Health Organization lists it as really the number one cause of morbidity, both in terms of occupational time off work, patients' lack of activity and ultimately pain. Um, it's a huge topic and we're not going to cover it all in, in great detail, but I would be interested in maybe you talking us through some of the epidemiology behind back pain before we get on to some of the detail regarding surgical intervention. Sure. Um, it's, 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 it's the leading cause of disability for, for young people, for people under the age of 45. And it's, it's, it's one of the leading causes of uh, visits to a doctor um, and, and, and indeed hospital admissions. And the, the prevalence of, of lower back pain is anywhere between 49 and 80 percent and um, uh, while uh, most adults experience back pain at some point in their lives, um, the incidence increases between the ages of 35 and 55. But fortunately, 90% of back pain resolves within about six weeks and a very small percentage of people develop chronic back pain in and around uh, 7%. Men and women seem to be equally affected. But yeah, even without treatment, um, uh, back pain usually resolves spontaneously. And, and in terms of the structures involved in the lumbar spine that can generate pain, there's often, of course, some discrepancies and, and the world seems to move from almost one very mechanical sort of focus to a very almost psychological focus. You might just sort of talk us through some of the anatomical features and findings in the lower back so we can start to hinge our discussions around it. So I suppose the uh, there is clearly going to be a connection between you know our psychological coping with a chronic recurring pain situation so that's understandable but the the genesis of back pain can be very diffuse and that's why it can be so challenging in terms of treatment so you can have um, very simple uh, pathology such as a, a, a disc protrusion or disc degeneration and that can vary from being simply, uh, you know, degeneration within the disc itself, proceeding to tearing of the lining of the disc called an annular tear. And in some cases, the disc material, the nucleus, the inside of the disc can completely herniate through the lining of the disc, either in a contained fashion where some of the lining just simply bulges outwards or it can completely burst through the lining and lie free on the nerve, what we would term uh, an extrusion or a part that is separated from the disc entirely called a sequestration. Alternatively, you can have problems within the posterior part of the spine where the, the joints, so in, 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 in terms of anatomy, we have the disc in the front of the spine and we have articulating joints in the back of the spine called facet joints. Uh, you can get arthritis in these joints or strain in the joints. And generally speaking, as we age, we age in terms of, of the, the mobile unit. So you get aging in the front of the spine and the disc and you get aging in the back of the spine in terms of uh, the facet joints. We what we've learned over the years is that what is critically important is the muscle surrounding the spine, namely the core muscles. And 
the strength or weakness of these muscles clearly has a huge influence on the severity of one's back pain over time. And and with that um, uh, sort of focus in terms of understanding the anatomy and understanding the development of that musculature, the fat infiltration or the potential sarcopenic effects of muscle around the back, how important is imaging as well alongside as clinical examination do you find in terms of helping both in, impress upon the patient what's wrong with them, but also in making that diagnosis? Yeah, this is where um, this where back pain is is, is trick can be tricky to treat, and and the the features Michael um, outlined um, uh, that you you'll see on imaging. Uh, it, it's often hard to correlate those features with back pain, and about eighty five percent of patients with back pain fall into the idiopathic uh, group. In other words, although we see annular tears and disc degeneration and arthritic facet joints. You can't necessarily point to those on an MRI scan and attribute those to the back pain. Um, where we are much better at, uh, what we're much better at diagnosing is radicular pain. If you have neural impingement, you can match that up to a, a pattern of pain. But when it's just back pain, like for example, 50% um, uh, of asymptomatic 40-year-olds will have a disc bulge on an MRI scan and 22% of asymptomatic 40-year-olds have an annular fissure on an MRI scan. So it's difficult when you do an MRI scan and, you know, the patient might get their hands on the report and um, they'll come into you and say, I, I've got a few disc bulges and that's therefore the source of my pain. I spend a few minutes uh, taking them through their imaging and indeed the um, statistics on these findings in the asymptomatic population. So it is it is um, it, it's difficult to point to a disc bulge and say that is where your back pain is coming from. But um, uh, so that's where I, as surgeons, we are very cautious at uh, uh, offering an operation for back pain, whereas for radicular pain, um, uh, surgery is a, a much more, uh, uh, the outcomes of surgery are a lot more successful. And, and of course, you um, as neurosurgeons will, of course, see in a very small proportion of, of patients um, malignant pathology uh, within the spine, and obviously imaging will give you that um, that either reassurance or, or indeed indication for further intervention. Exactly, and and the the the, the, the I suppose when I said eighty five percent of patients have idiopathic lower back pain, they kind of fall into the degenerative category. So what you are looking for on imaging, if somebody has back pain that's gone on beyond eight weeks, they should have an MRI scan to outrule deformity infection, tumor, uh, or fracture. And, and they're, 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 the, they're pathologies you can point to and say, well, yes, this is the source of your back pain. Most people won't have that. So I suppose the MRI scan is reassuring uh, rather than anything else in somebody who has back pain that hasn't resolved spontaneously. And the opportunity, of course, to show the patient the images, to talk them through the anatomy so their understanding increases as well as actually explain why the, the contributory nature is or isn't part of it is an important step as part of that consultation. I think it is. And I think the I think education forms a huge part of this. So like you said, it, our ability to uh, to teach the patient about their own back is extremely important in terms of especially getting buy-in 
because a lot of the treatments that we're prescribing won't be for, you know, a couple of weeks. It'll be trying to get them to make a lifestyle change of doing regular core strengthening because it's one of the few proven things that makes a difference to chronic recurring back pain long term. And and I, I think you make a very good point because there's often in in our within our colleagues a lot of hesitancy regarding MRI scans of the lumbar spine, predominantly because, as you both say, the the asymptomatic prevalence of abnormality is very high. But often when referrers are relying on on the report alone rather than the images themselves, the ability to use that as an education opportunity is lessened because quite understandably the patient looks at the report and says hey, look, I've got 15 different things listed here on the report, um, which are all really important. But actually them understanding the relevance of it, it does allow us to then lead on into the potential interventions. Yeah, I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, it, it, in my practice, certainly um, imaging uh, forms part of every consultation. And I'm showing the patient the pictures rather than the report. And that's very important. And I'll often show them a slide that outlines uh, uh, the, the features you see in asymptomatic patients on a, on, a, on a lumbar spine scan. And then they realize that actually a lot of the, uh, the, the points that the radiologist has allude, have alluded to are, are normal. So I, 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 as I say to people, it's almost, once you hit the age of 30, uh, more than half the population has disc degeneration. So it's almost abnormal to see a, a scan that says normal. So it is important to look at the pictures and it's important to, to, to reassure patients uh, that their spines aren't, in fact, falling apart and uh, they will probably be fine. For sure. And, and Michael, you mentioned earlier on in terms of strength and rehabilitation. I know you, you, you both employ physiotherapists and strength and conditioning coaches within your practice. And we at the Sports Surgery Clinic published some research in 2015 focusing on um, the fat infiltration uh, of the paravertebral muscles, the lumbar spine, and then looked at the outcome of that in a rehab intervention in terms of strength. Uh, we won't have time to really spend a lot of focus in terms of what I guess people would normally call conservative rehabilitation, but actually is very much more than that. Um, but that's the first step, is it not, in many of these patients uh, with back pain? I, I think it's a, it's a crucial step. And your ability to your success rate or your success and failures is oftentimes defined by how successful you are in terms of rehabilitating and strengthening the core muscles. And the, the again, the brings you back to the education about getting the patient to buy into and understanding that this is a, a long-term process, that it's, it's, it'll need to be an ongoing, oftentimes lifetime change that they will need to make to, to incorporate core strengthening into part of their daily lives. And I think that's easy to underestimate, of course, for all of us, insofar as it is absolutely that. It's a, it's a prescription of exercise which takes time and, and is not something that a patient necessarily will see a change within two or three weeks. There's a, there's a period of time um that needs to to go on in order to see results absolutely i, I would think that you you know any change that you're looking at you really are looking at you know a, a three to four month period before you'll see a meaningful change absolutely and we, we know from ourselves in the gym if we're actually trying to make a change in muscle 
size or volume that actually that's not something that can be done without misuse of, of medication um, in, a, in a faster time frame. I, I think if we go back, Owen, however, there are a group of patients with radiculopathy, so, so pain that's referred, um, where they may not be able to gain strength sufficiently quickly or indeed be able to tolerate the strength program for the back um, because of that radicular pain. How, how do we then go on to investigate and manage that group of patients? Absolutely. Radicular pain uh, uh, can be very severe and uh, we, we frequently see patients that physically can't exercise because they're so disabled. <clears throat> now, radicular pain is where a surgeon is very useful, whereas, whereas, whereas with lower back pain, you might be focusing primarily on strength and conditioning exercises. With radicular pain, um, we, we can usually treat that and our, our success rate is quite high. So first of all, uh, similar to back pain, most patients with radicular pain settle within six or eight weeks. So about 75% will settle down. So initially they need the an adequate cocktail of analgesia. The uh, acute bout of pain will hopefully settle down and, and all will be well. But obviously that doesn't happen for everybody. And if the pain lingers, that's when we... Uh, advocate an MRI scan. You can usually figure out which nerve is involved um, uh, with the, the clinical pattern of the pain, but uh, the MRI scan will uh, will confirm that. And then depending on the age of the patient, the younger patient will probably have a disc prolapse and an older patient might have um, um, a neural impingement uh, due to facet overgrowth or, or, or thickened ligament and flavum. So you can, you can usually match the imaging findings to the pain and then you have various options in treating radicular pain. So the first option being the conservative approach, physiotherapy and acupuncture. But as you say, they may be simply too sore to um, engage with uh, such therapies. So the next option would be either an injection. So um, I, I tend to advocate a, a, a transferaminal epidural injection. That's a targeted injection to the nerve root in question or an operation where you can remove the, the, the compression uh, from the nerve. Now, I would withhold the offer of surgery until they have been in pain for six or eight weeks because we know the natural history is favorable, but I obviously wouldn't withhold the offer of an injection. Um, injections have about a 60% success rate. Surgery is about a 90% success rate. But my rationale for uh, arranging, arranging an injection, and, and most patients I see with radicular pain will have an injection, uh, is that um, you always have surgery in your back pocket if the injection doesn't work. Um, and it's a less invasive procedure. So I think it's a very reasonable uh, step if their uh, oral analgesia is not uh, taking the edge off their pain or they're just too sore to, um, to exercise. And we might just focus a little on, on the decision-making around the types of injection there in terms of foraminal versus epidural and then the sort of the exiting or the transiting nerve route in terms of if there's a, a multi-disc um, involvement or multi-foraminal involvement, how do you guys make that call as to, to which you think um, might give the patient more benefit? So um, the success rate with transferaminal CT-guided nerve root injections typically would have a higher success rate than a more generalized caudal epidural type injection. In terms of deciding on <clears throat> whether it's the traversing or the exiting nerve root, so at each level of the lumbar spine, one nerve will leave and one nerve will pass that disc space. 
So typically, if, if we take the example of a, a disc herniation at the L4-5 level, the exiting nerve at that level will be L4. Generally speaking, a prolapse or disc herniation at the L4-5 level will compress the traversing nerve root, which happens to be the L5 nerve root. So to do a targeted injection, we'll actually be targeting the level below because the L5 nerve root will exit at the L5 as one level. So even though it's an L4-5 disc herniation, it's the level below that the injection will be targeted to. In other words, the where the nerve root is leaving the spine. The, the, in terms of your decision making about which level you go for, that's generally speaking, you can figure that out by looking, in most cases, by getting the patient to, to map out the distribution of the run of the pain. And typically, the commonest uh, disc herniations occur at the two lower lumbar levels, affecting either the L5 or the S1 nerve root. The L5, an L5 distribution, will typically be down the outside of the thigh, outside of the calf, into the dorsum or the top of the foot, and out to the great toe. The S1 distribution will be more into the buttock down to your thigh and calf, either into the sole of the foot or the lateral aspect of the foot. And generally speaking, that's how you decide. And, and I think that's very important for our for our referrers um, to, to appreciate, particularly the transiting and the exiting nerve root differential, because often they can see a report which doesn't necessarily seem to correlate in terms of the patient's symptoms and the clinical exam that they might find, and then sort of reach an indecision. But but I think that's important that the, there is that almost layer below, which is often the target. Um, how many injections, if I might ask? So, so if a patient gets two or three months relief from an injection, do you go back and repeat an injection? Um, or, or is that the then indication to progress? My practice, well, the, yeah, the, the natural history uh, of um, radicular pain is favorable. So if you look at everybody who's had radicular pain, only about 3% will have had surgery. And um, I, in my practice, if they get good relief from an injection, as you say, two or three months, I think a second injection is very reasonable in that situation. Um, it might be just what they need um, uh, to get over the line. I tend to draw a line after two, and I draw a line after one injection if the first injection didn't work. So um, they'll say, you know, it can take up to three or four weeks for an injection to work. Really, if it hasn't worked in the first two weeks, it probably hasn't worked. I don't see the point in repeating exactly the same injection if the first one didn't work but i would repeat it if they got excellent relief from from an initial injection and and then if you're considering an operation now clearly we it's difficult to to paint the exact scenario here but if the problem is predominantly disc based so large protrusion nerve compression what actually happens in terms of the surgery there what what is the option and could you just explain some of the detail behind it so the, the patient is given a full anesthetic. Um, there is a small incision made over the targeted level. Uh, localization is achieved by getting intraoperative uh, fluoroscopy or x-ray. Um, a window is created in the spine 
by creating a window in the ligamentum flavum, which is the thickened ligament that lies at the back of the spine. Uh, the nerve tissue then in the nerve roots is moved to the side and typically the disc herniation will be lying or sitting underneath the nerve root and displacing it posteriorly. So it allows us to fish out and remove in a piecemeal type fashion the disc extrusion or the, the, the disc sequestration. We do not remove the disc in its entirety. We simply remove the piece that is protruding out from the disc space and freeing, freeing the nerve roots and relieving the pressure on the nerve. And, and after surgery, Michael, there, how does that how does that map out? Is the patient in overnight? Are they in hospital for a couple of days? When can they start to walk around? Typically, the surgery is either done on the same day basis or discharged within 24 hours. So uh, and in terms of return to activity, return to activity is done in a graduated manner then over a couple of weeks. And, and and what differs, I presume, if there's some significant facet joint osteoarthritis, your approach is exactly the same. You're, you're in the same space, you've made a window, and then you address that facet joint overgrowth, or, or is there a different approach? So the, the, the operation is, 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 a de, is a decompression, and you're right, it's the same approach. So um, most of the nerves we're decompressing are the the, the the traversing nerves that Michael was talking about. And they, they sit in an area called the lateral recess. So the lateral recess has the disc and the vertebral body in front, the joint, facet joint at the back, and the pedicle out laterally. And all we're doing is we're drilling away the medial part of the facet joint and removing the ligamentum flavum. And that is the decompression operation. The discectomy bit is a is plus or minus. So the the the, the the operation is is the decompression, and if there's a if there's a fragment of disc in front of the nerve, you you'll take that as well. So in the approach, uh, you'll have removed the um, uh, overgrown facet joint and the thickened ligament. Yeah. And and in terms of when that's not enough, or post surgery the problem recurs, what other options are open to you? I think that, you know, in 5% of cases, patients will get recurrent disc herniations where a further fragment of the nucleus will break through and again lie underneath the nerve, causing nerve root irritation and compression. And in, in perhaps up to even 10% of patients will require further surgery in terms of a redo microdiscectomy over time. Um, and that would be the preferred option. The to treat radicular leg pain. So the the, the, the preference would be to to do redo microdiscectomy and decompress the nerve that way. For sure. And and in terms of potential side effects, complications of the operation, patients are often very nervous about having spinal surgery it carries with it a sort of a, a weight of of significance uh, what do you talk the patient through in terms of risks and 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 side effects 
Yeah, you're right. Um, people hear about an operation on their spine and they, they're quite fearful usually. The reason we like the microdiscectomy operation is that the success rate is very high and the complication rate is very low. So there's good risk benefit profile there. So I, I go through the, the general risks of any general anesthesia, myocardial infarction, stroke, uh, deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism. Um, thrombolism, thromboembolism is a very, very low complication of, of, of lumbar spine surgery. It's not like other orthopedic surgery. Um, but in terms of the specific risks of, of lumbar spine surgery, um, we, we, what most people worry about is the, the risk of neural injury. And for example, if you if you injure the L5 nerve root, you can you can cause a foot drop. Fortunately, um, the risk of doing that is, is, is less than 1%, roughly 1 in 200. Um, there's a one in a thousand chance of an injury to the cauda equina, so that's that's even rarer still. And um, the, the biggest risk is the, the risk of durotomy, so an unintentional dural tear. When I say the biggest risk, that only happens in about 5% of patients. And it's something you identify down the microscope at the time of surgery and you, and you patch up. So it's it's usually not a, a long term problem. So fortunately, um, we, we can quote a bit, maybe about an 88 uh, percent chance of a good to excellent outcome. And if you add all the risks together, they come in at less than 5 percent. So there's a good uh, risk benefit profile there. For sure. Um, you mentioned Cordra Quina um, there. You might just pe people who are referring or, or examining patients regularly have this fear of missing potential cordial equina syndrome. Um, you might just talk us through a what that is, what the signs are and the steps that need to be taken from a referrer uh, who might be concerned. Okay, so cordial equina is one of the few or uh, true surgical emergencies when it comes to lumbar disc surgery. And it implies impairment of uh, bladder or bowel control from usually a large or massive disc protrusion at either the L4-5 or L5-S1 level. And the you get interruption of the sacral nerves and patients can complain of having an interruption of their normal bladder function. So they might say, I'm finding it difficult to empty my bladder or there's a change in the function of my bladder. I don't feel I'm completely emptying or only when I pass the urine, it's coming out in a very slow fashion. Other complaints that they might give you is that they've noticed a numbness around the perineum, around the vulva or perianal region. Again, symptoms that, you, you, that can alert you to potentially you're, that you're dealing with a very large disc herniation is that if a patient is complaining of bilateral leg symptoms or if they develop motor weakness, in other words, partial foot drops on both sides, all of these would be would would, would put them in, in a red flag type uh, scenario. And certainly uh, any patient presenting with symptoms like this would need urgent onward referral and referral to the local emergency department uh, for urgent MRI or that the or that you're in a position to make directly contact, make direct contact with a spinal surgeon saying this patient has query cardioquina 
patient needs to be seen urgently, because certainly there is an urgency with regards to dealing with a case like that. And I know in the UK, there's been a lot of discussion with the national planning group in terms of, I guess, referrers or, or clinicians are often very tentative in terms of the terminology here. And there's an awful case of a young man um, suffering the ill effects because he didn't understand really what we meant by a term such as saddle anesthesia. Um, and so there's a big encouragement in terms of being very direct in terms of loss of erectile function um, and that incontinence. And I think that's probably an important point to make is that we, what we understand from a clinical terminology might not necessarily be understood by the patient who might then hang on to those progressive symptoms for longer than they might otherwise. That's absolutely true. And I, I asked them questions such, such as um, if, if you're uh, wiping yourself after a bowel motion, um, does it feel different? Um, saddle anesthesia is probably the, the most common symptom in cold equina syndrome. So what you're, you're really trying to pick out those uh, sacral root symptoms. You, you shouldn't, if you have a disc prolapse at L4, L5, the sacral nerves shouldn't be affected. And if they are affected by that disc prolapse, they, they have cauda equina syndrome by, by definition. So it is it is very important to inquire about uh, erectile dysfunction and, 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 and saddle anesthesia in particular is, is useful. If people talk about incontinence. It's actually overflow incontinence they get rather than uh, it's retention, uh, urinary retention rather than urinary incontinence. So they'll be unaware of their bladder filling up and uh, might, might not be aware that they need to pass urine, but, um, but they'll have difficulty emptying, emptying their bladder as well. Yeah. And I know there's an argument ongoing at the moment as to whether or not a sort of digital rectal examination or rectal tone is, is an important mandatory part of the, of the clinical examination or whether, in fact, that the symptom profile is is of more relevance. Where do you stand in terms of including that when you're clinically seeing a patient with a scan um, showing a large disc protrusion and we're deciding whether to progress to surgery? I, I think that the, the combination of the symptom profile, the finding of impaired sensation in the perineum, and the, of course, the confirmation of having an MRI scan showing a very large disc protrusion. Uh, I, I certainly, doing um, uh, an anal tone examination by itself uh, wouldn't be the deciding factor. I think that the, the three earlier uh, points would, for me, hold far greater weight. For sure. I, I I have to agree with Michael. I, I think um, I, I'd only use that examination if I was unsure whether the patient needed an MRI scan. If, if, if they had an MRI scan already, which showing a big disc and they had those symptoms, um, they need definitive treatment. Um, it's not going to change your management. For sure. And, In fact, and, if they all stay on, it's a bit late. You want to get them before that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and, and so just to give us an idea, how urgent is urgent? You know, we hear, we hear the terms like urgent surgery, patient pitching up an A&E. What's the decision making in terms of do they go straight to the theatre? I, I mean, I, I've certainly I, I know cases that I've shared with you guys before that there's, there's sometimes a difference in between a patient going straight to theatre that very uh, next hour or two or being able to be a bit more planned than six to eight hours later. Where where do you just sit in terms of the decision making process? I, I think it, it depends on the severity of the presentation. 
like you you clearly want to get um, a patient um, in the what I what I would term the pre cauda equina uh, syndrome, uh, as opposed to someone in full blown cauda equina, and the the difference being is that with incomplete or pre cauda equina, there were, you you will nearly get universal recovery of normal bladder function. However, if you let the situation develop to a point where the patient has lost control of their bladder and, you know, is in retention or has overflow incontinence, the recovery of bladder function in that scenario is much less certain. So that's why I would talk about change in bladder function as opposed to waiting for the more historical uh, findings of, say, overflow incontinence or um, urinary retention, that you'd hope to pick these cases up at an earlier stage of bladder dysfunction. But certainly in terms of the urgency with, with how quickly we get it or we, we proceed to theatre, I suppose it depends on, on, on factors like how long have the symptoms been present, whether this is a stable situation, whether it's a very acute situation and a rapidly evolving situation, they'll all influence your decision in terms of the, how immediate that this situation needs to be dealt with. But by and large, a rule of thumb is that this is, this is you know, Cotoquana by itself is a surgical emergency that is time sensitive and that you do have a window of opportunity to intervene you know, before you could be left with a long-term bladder impairment. Absolutely, and we'll we'll make links to the the latest guidelines in in the show notes for anyone who wants to uh, be able to update themselves further. Uh, gentlemen, we we said when we set out, we'd try to stick to thirty-five minutes. We're absolutely on the money. Um, we may leave it there. I, I'd just like to say thank you so much for um, taking us through that process. I think it's of great use, and uh, and thank you very much for your time. Andy, thank you so much. Okay, thanks for having us. Thanks very much, Andy. Thank you very much to uh, Mr. Michael Callahan and Mr. Owen Fenton uh, from the Sports Surgery Clinic for that discussion regarding uh, indications for spinal surgery. Uh, their website is www.neurospine.ie and the Sports Surgery Clinic you can find at www.sportssurgeryclinic.com.